All right. Welcome to 2018, everybody, on a minor detail. I'm Ryan Miner, and I'm your host. Um, thanks for joining me tonight. This is uh, – so kicking off the year, um, we're going to do this every Sunday night as long as I can, um, except on, let's see, April 22nd, which will be uh, the night after my wedding. So we're not going to do it that night because um, I'm going to be busy. And – uh, we'll, we're going to try to get as many candidates and political thought leaders and journalists to talk about this upcoming election in Maryland. This is a Maryland-centered show, and we're going to get as many people on here as possible. So this is always going to be turned into a podcast after the show that I will release, typically through so- social media, and then it will be live at the 9 o'clock show. And I'm pleased to welcome my very first guest of 2018, and I should preface this with, I I apologize, I'm fighting off of a, a cold, and moreover, I was flying and coming back from, from Florida from a sales conference for, for my day job, and I my ear has not popped, and I've been going through this problem of trying to get this left ear to pop so I can only hear out of one ear tonight so if I turn up the volume or if I'm speaking a little bit too loud just send me an inbox message or a text hey cool it um, but with that the, the show shall continue and my, my voice will hopefully last for the duration of our time my first guest of the year of 2018 and it's going to be a hell of a year is my own my very own state senator Brian Feldman from District 15 and this is just one great guy, and I, I got to know Senator Feldman um, over the last year or so, and uh, we found out that we have a lot in common, and he's just overall a, a fantastic and decent human being, and this is his first time on the show, and I'm really pleased to have him. So welcome, Senator Feldman. Well, it's great to be here, and congratulations on your pending nuptials, and um, I think I may have mentioned this already, you're getting married on my wife's birthday on April 21st. So that date um, is important in the Feldman family, and um, I think it's, it's very, very exciting. So it's a good day. That means that's it good It is a luck. very good day, yes. yes. Hopefully it's... So we're going to be married down in St. Michael's, where, where uh, nearby where one of your colleagues in the House of Delegates, Johnny Mounts. That's where we're going to... So Senator Feldman, we're going to do our after party there at uh, his Carpenter well, Street if Saloon. If I could interject, I think I, I've told you that Johnny is, is is a great guy, and I've actually been to his family uh, bar in uh, St. Michael's. Um, I was there a few months back, and it's a great place, and so I think that's a good choice. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 low key. It's the local hangout. We've been there so many times. We got engaged in St. Michael's and it's, it's a special place for us. And we're, we're knee deep in wedding planning and you, you know how that goes. It's, it's a lot, yeah. but we'll, we'll get there. So, um, but tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in the Maryland general assembly, of course, on Wednesday, this past Wednesday on the 10th session, uh, the annual 90 day affair has kicked off and we are, uh, in the middle of an election year as well, this is the year where all of the members of the Maryland General Assembly are up for re-election, including yourself, Senator Feldman. And you have already announced that. I'm, I'm happy to announce this, but you've already done so. But on this show, I will go ahead and take the latitude to say that you are running for re-election in District 15. 
Yes, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really enjoying the Senate. I spent uh, you know, a fair amount of time over in the House of Delegates, and now um, for some years I've uh, been over in the Senate side, which is a little bit you know, different. Um, I serve on the Senate Finance Committee, and we're in the middle of a lot of the hot issues in, in the state. And um, you know, I'm really excited about uh, hopefully uh, re-upping uh, you know, for another term, but uh, there's going to be a lot of turnover in the Senate. And uh, I think potentially, and uh, you know, some opportunity uh, in that chamber. But uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I've got a good team in District 15. Um, it's a great district to represent. It's really diverse. You know, it goes from Potomac uh, to the south, all the way to the Frederick County border. So we've got uh, folks along River Road, but we've got farmers up in the Ag Reserve, and a lot in, in between. So it's it's a really uh, it's a, been a great uh, honor uh, to, to serve and represent this district for for a few terms here. So uh, yeah, the answer you, to that is yes. Yeah, I'm 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 so happy that you are running for re-election. In fact, uh, you've developed quite a, a solid reputation among your colleagues that you're. Um, and not to gush over you because I hate gushing over politicians, but um, you, you've developed a, a relationship in that you are working across the aisle. Um, yes, you're a Democrat. Yes, um, I would I would say that you're a, a moderate leaning progressive, and and that's and I I that may not be how you characterize yourself, but I see you as a someone that is interested in public policy and doing what's best for all Marylanders. And especially your district and uh, being relatively new to District 15, I live in North Potomac and uh, we have uh, a really vibrant, diverse community, as you mentioned, from Potomac all the way up to uh, the rural part of, uh, you know, this district up to the Frederick County border, as you had said. And one thing I can tell you from living in this district, uh, I it's I, I really appreciate our education we have excellent schools. Um, our infrastructure, while it could be improved, uh, I can get from point A to point B in a relatively short amount of time. We have great restaurants. We have excellent neighbors. There's a very strong community sense, Senator Feldman, and we have just a lot of activities. Um, and it's it's really a dynamic place to be uh, in in the heart of Montgomery County. And I'm really proud of the work that you and your uh, your your colleagues and your team um, in, in the House of Delegates, especially uh, Delegates Kathleen Dumay and uh, uh, David Frazier uh, Hidalgo and Aruna Miller, who is opting not to run for reelection for the House of Delegates in District 15, but rather she's heading uh, for maybe perhaps greener pastures running for Congress in the 6th Congressional District. And of course, we wish uh, Delegate Miller all the best in uh, her endeavors, and she has been. I think she's been elected since 2010. Um, right, right, and, and, and you know, and it, what's good about this group, uh, and again, it's going to change a little bit with Aruna running for for the congressional seat. But the, you know, each of us brought or has brought, um, you know, different strengths uh, to the legislature, and we serve on different committees handling different topics, and that's really been nice. And we live in different parts of the district. Um, all four of us actually, we cover. You know the entirety of the district with you know Dave David Fraser Hidalgo lives in Boyd's and Aruna's in in Darnstown and, and and Kathleen you know Rockville and and I'm a little further south but we it's a big district but all four of us reside in different parts but but maybe even more important than that we we serve on different committees uh, Kathleen's the vice chair of our judiciary committee uh, Aruna 
has been on our appropriations committee, deals with budget stuff, and uh, and David's been on our environmental committee, and I serve on the Senate Finance Committee. So each of those committees handle a lot of different subjects. So when we get together and we talk, we can really compare notes about the swath of bills um, in the legislature. And I don't think most of your viewers may not appreciate the fact that we each year have something around 3,000 different bills or 3,000 bills introduced into the legislature and every single one of them gets a public hearing and have to be dealt with one way or the other and so you read and you know you hear about some of the higher profile issues but what you don't see is the committee work devoted to the other 2,900 bills that aren't so juicy and in many cases, uh, there's a lot of bipartisan co- cooperation. Annapolis is not uh, Capitol Hill, not, you know, despite what, you, what some folks may read. Um, and my own committee, the Finance Senate Finance Committee, um, we collaborate a lot, uh, Democrat, Republican. And so, um, but, it, but getting back to my point about us being on different committees, it's, I think, important and it's a strength that we're not all working on the same topics, the same issues. We can compare notes. I think that's been a, you know, a real advantage for our legislative district relative to some others. Agreed. I've I've heard plenty of complimentary accolades that have been foisted onto this delegation in that it's a, a very workable delegation. Each of you uh, work together um, very well with one another. And as you mentioned, the diversity of um, of the the committees of which you set on uh, contributes to all facets of the state. And Delegate Dumay has been uh, a real leader on the Judiciary Committee. And, um, and of course, finance, that's that's huge um, for our district. So um, just briefly, Senator Feldman, what is your how, how did you get to your position of where you are today? What was your start in politics? And you um, you also you have a day job as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, things evolve. I mean, because of the unique nature of the legislature, where we're there for three months, although I must say it is not a three-month job, it is a 12-month job. Um, You know, we are dealing with meetings and constituent issues 12 months a year. My office is open 12 months a year. So that complicates, um, you know, what you're doing in the rest of your professional life. And so I always tell folks who are thinking about running, you know, before you do that, you really got to fully understand what's involved, the times involved, running for office, but then, you know, actually serving in a legislature that is not like the United States Congress, that's 12 months a year, really a full-time job. But I, um, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised a uh, Pittsburgher um, from Pittsburgh. and uh, oh, Tough game today. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and I know you have a Western Maryland side. I, yeah. I always feel an affinity to Western Maryland because they still get their Pittsburgh TV up there, and yeah. there's actually some Steeler fans in Western Maryland. And uh, but I um, I moved to DC after law school. I went away to college, went um, back home, went to law school, moved to DC for a job, and um, uh, you know found myself. I was a U.S. Justice Department lawyer for many years. Uh, litigated. Uh, cases around the United States for the uh, U.S. Department of Justice and um, some interesting cases. And I uh, did that, again, for 13 years. And in fact, that's where I met my wife. She was a DOJ lawyer as well. And, uh, um, you know, but it, like everybody else, you take stock of what you're doing and what you might w- want to do. I always was a political junkie, loved politics, always thought about the idea, uh, you know, of running for office. 
and um, and was starting to think about doing some other things uh, professionally within my lawyer world. And um, an opportunity presented itself in, in uh, the Maryland House of Delegates. One of the state delegates, Mark Shriver, um, Mark, yeah. one of, of the Kennedy uh, family, um, he um, decided to run for the United States Congress. At, and that was, we're going back in 2002, um, he ran for a congressional eight seat. He got beat in the uh, Democratic primary by Chris Van Hollen, who was a state senator. Um, and Connie Morella was the congresswoman. That was, uh, you know, a very hotly contested uh, fight. But Mark left uh, the, the delegate seat at that time, and uh, there was a bit of a recruitment effort going on to try to recruit um, some folks to uh, to take uh, or get elected to that Shriver open seat. And uh, I had begun to get a little bit involved. Um, uh, I was, you know, in District 15 politics. We had a d- Democratic club. I was the president of that District 15 Democratic club for, for a couple of years. And then I just made a decision. I mean, I hadn't run for office before, but I and I, I really did, you know, 13 years at DOJ was, was enough. I, I just wanted to break out and try something else and, and try something different. And I took a shot, and, um, and fortunately I won that uh, delegate seat. And that, you know, got me started, and I as I say, I spent a few couple of terms in the House of Delegates. I chaired our Montgomery County delegation uh, for five years in the House, and uh, was the parliamentarian of the House of Delegates. And um, and then, uh, you know, eventually, like again, uh, things presented themselves in the Senate. Um, the my pre- my predecessor, Rob Gargiola, had uh, decided to run for Congress, and things didn't work out there, and he. He decided to do something different, so opportunity presented itself to move over to the Senate, um, and I, I took advantage of that opportunity, and, and, uh, and that was in 2013, and and uh, I've been in the Senate uh, since that time. So, um, so it's been great. It's been a great run. I've enjoyed it, um, and then I get to sort of play lawyer also um, on the side to help pay some of the bills, but also I teach at Johns Hopkins a course on federalism, the interplay between Congress and the states. So I'm able to bring my um, state legislative experience or, uh, you know, what's going on in Annapolis to the classroom. And uh, a lot that's of my certainly apropos work on Capitol to... Hill. What's that, right? I said that's certainly apropos to what you, you know. To, yeah, to and a lot of the, my the students ap- work on yeah. Capitol Capitol Hill, and they think the world revolves around Capitol Hill, and things don't happen in state capitals. So, I spend a lot of my class trying to persuade them that most of the action in the United States these days, the real action, the issues impacting the lives of most of us, actually are happening in state and local government, not on Capitol Hill. And uh, at the end of ten weeks, all of my students are looking for jobs in Richmond and Annapolis or the state capitals. Uh, that they came from, uh, feeling like they're wasting their lives up on Capitol Hill to some extent. So, um, you know, so I'm able to do that, play professor and and uh, and some lawyering. So it's it's been an interesting uh, an interesting ride, and um, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, you know, overall. Looking at 2018 and getting back into session, it, there's always so much to do before. Going back into the into Annapolis now, what what kind of what's your ritual for getting back into the groove and preparing yourself for entering uh, this ninety day slog? Yeah, well, there is a psychology that you know at the end of each session we're pretty well spent. I mean, it's pretty uh, intense down there, and so um, you almost 
start to think to yourself, do I want to come back here? Do I want to do this? I mean, it's pretty exhausting. But by the time uh, I think fall comes around, um, things start to pick up. You actually miss the work. Um, and, you know, obviously folks start to approach you with issues, ideas, ideas for bills. You may go to conferences and pick up on things yourself. But a lot of it does depend on what committee you're on because, the you know, the issues that are in front of your committee um, – are going to be sort of center in your in your mind. Like this year, we created one of the issues uh, my committee has is healthcare policy. So we were very closely monitoring what was happening on Capitol Hill with the Affordable Care Act and attempts to repeal, replace. And then there was a debate about skinny uh, uh, skinny repeal. Um, but we created actually a commit a health uh, coverage health insurance coverage protection commission that was set up to be able to respond quickly to anything that happened on Capitol Hill. And I actually uh, was appointed to be the Senate co-chair of that commission this year. Right. Um, the House chair is Delegate Jocelyn Pena-Melnick. Um, and so, you know, I spent a lot of the year, and we had meetings the, during during the entirety of the year. It wasn't just legislators. We had um, members of the commission from the administration, our health secretary, our, uh, the Maryland hospitals, the insurance industry, and in fact, just last week we issued our report for the year with um, some ideas and options that we need to think about now that the so-called individual mandate has been, um, you know, uh, gutted, if you will. And what impact will that have on insurance premiums for people in our state? So I spent this year on a, you know, a big issue, which was um, health care, health, the health commission. I actually chair the subcommittee on health care um, in the Senate. So. You know, it, sometimes there's just big issues that can dominate um, uh, your, your interim time, and that was one this year. But often it's just you meet a lot of people, you get ideas. I mean, most of the some of the best ideas that I've come up with are from folks like you. In fact, <laughs> we may want to talk. You gave me an idea, yeah. Aruna Miller, an idea for a bill. But but that's how it happens too. We have big issues like health care and metro funding. I'm working with Delegate Mark Corman on some funding for our metro system. Those are the big issues. But then there are all these other issues that, in all candor, just come to us. And so we can't, can't put in 100 bills. So, you know, we have to start to think about our priorities, what's up our, you know, up our alley and what's in our committee. And, and, and so you spend a lot of time on that. And, you know, and you hear from constituents during the entire the year what's on their mind. So you put that all together, and when you start getting to about November, December, you start to get a pretty good idea of what bills do you want to champion, what bills are coming in that you, you hear of that sound like really bad ideas. It's not just about passing good things. It's killing bad ones. And, um, and you know, that, that takes on a I would say in the fall, uh, you know, that really becomes, um, you know, its own full-time job. So, I mean, that may give you a little flavor of, uh, yeah, you know, of how it works. <clears throat> well, certainly election season always seems to add an extra element of, I don't know, what's the word, excitement, drama, or um, just overall attention. The press is covering it um, frequently. I know that my fellow uh, friends and colleagues, especially Maryland Matters, by the way, I want to give a shout out to them. They're an excellent new publication by Josh Kurtz and my good friend, Lou Peck, and they've brought on a few different reporters to cover some of this, some of the more the committee 
hearings, which is important. Um, I, none of session should go uncovered. And if I, of course, if I did not have a full-time job, I would, I would definitely be in Annapolis as, as much as possible to, well, to really say, highlight. Ryan, I mean, since you mentioned Josh Kurtz and that, you know, one of the, and I'm so happy you do what you do and when Josh does what he does, because there was a huge void right now of coverage of state capitals, even though, as I said, most of the action, in my view, um, in our country is happening in state capitals. The amount of time that, you know, um, the press spends or the resources devoted to covering state capitals seems to be going the opposite direction. And so, you know, there used to be a time when, for example, Washington Post used to have, you know, be, uh, have more folks down there, the Baltimore Sun. So they're, they don't have uh, the, either the resources or whatever the case may be. You know, the Sun and the Post, and, and we used to have a Gazette newspaper that doesn't exist anymore. So yeah. there's, a, there's a real appetite, a real appetite um, for what you do and what, and what Maryland Matters does. But it's not just that it, there's an appetite for it. It's really important for people out there to know what's going on and to read about it. And, um, you know, in the D.C. area, which I represent, you know, we're the Washington Post. We're competing with Virginia and D.C., and uh, we just don't get that much coverage about what's happening in Annapolis. Um, the Baltimore Sun actually does, you know, covers Annapolis a lot more than the Post. But, there's a, again, there's a need for what you um, and the other folks filling that void do. Um, it's really, really important. I just need to make that, that point. Well, I appreciate that, and there's certainly an appetite for consuming uh, state and local news, and we are um, bereft of that coverage after the Gazette has left us here in Montgomery County. That was a uh, a keystone newspaper. That was one of the bedrock uh, journalistic institutions in Montgomery County that sadly has left us, and bloggers uh, like myself, uh, you know, these and I, I would say my a part-time journalist um, or is a hobby, and podcasters and folks like um, Adam and David Lublin from Seven State. They're they're doing some really um, powerful and robust coverage of county politics. And Maryland Matters is really picking up the the slack and are covering a lot of these statewide issues that um, with some real gusto and that's great and. A lot of times I'll have journalists on the show from around the state, respected journalists who come on and we have these conversations because they're in the know. They, they have to. That's their job. They, they follow this. Uh, they follow politics in Maryland. And really, it's a passion. It's a hobby. But you know, I, I try to use this show to inform people that before they head off to the ballot box or they have uh, – they're people that can reach out to, to state legislators like yourself. Um, Senator Feldman and um, put forward ideas. And that's really, people ask me all the time, well, you know, how do we, how do we get things changed in our local community? Well, it all starts with this process is just contacting your office. If they have an idea, they can meet with you and you've always made yourself available. I know the district, the district 15 delegation has been available um, by just setting up a meeting or a breakfast or a lunch or whatnot. And, you, you present an idea to a state delegate, and then that's from there. It, it goes into the bill writing committee, and if if it's something that they think that is um, a plausible piece of legislation that can make it to the governor's desk, that's worthy of, um, that's a powerful piece of public policy. That's how it's done. It's easy as that, and that's why 
I tell people all the time, if you ever have any questions about state government, any function whatsoever, or if you even just want to express your basic opinion about what's happening in Maryland politics, just call you. And, and you're always been very responsive to and the we're concerns not, you of know, your unlike constituents. The Capitol Hill, where the, you know you you call and you get a you know congressional aid, a staffer, and, yeah. We don't we don't have big staffs, you know, at the state level. Um, you know, we don't have that many filters. We don't have that many people blocking you from coming down and sitting in my office. And so, it's really different. I, I know people confuse sometimes different levels of government, particularly around here, since we're so close to D.C. But I do really need to say that the way we operate with, you know, a few, we don't have much staff. So a lot of the information we get or ideas we get really are from the public. And uh, and if you come down, you're going to probably meet, you know, with me in my office, not with a staffer that, you know, uh, you'll meet. I mean, so it's, it's it just works different, operates differently. Sure. And I, I really I like that a lot. Yeah, I know. I, as a former Capitol Hill staffer myself, during the economic collapse and the fall of 2008, um, I can tell you, I, I spent a lot of time on the phone with frustrated constituents who voiced their opinion. And sometimes um, the congressman will personally handwrite a correspondence to constituents, but mostly that's done through legislative correspondent or uh, legislative aides that take care of those. And, and it's, it's, you know, that's a district of 650,000 people, but um, in, in the state of Maryland, there's a very hands-on feeling. There's a, a localized feeling and, and people see you out and about all the time throughout the community. So um, when, when session kicked off on Wednesday, I, fortunately I could not make it since I was down in sunny Florida. What, um, what what happens typically on the first day? How does that how does that work? Well, the first day um, is is pretty ceremonial. Um, people bring down their family. I brought I have a a son living in, now in California who was yeah. visiting for the week. I brought him. He was able to sit on the floor with me. The first day, for the most part, is largely ceremonial. Uh, the governor came in this um, year as he always does. Get you know gets up and. Um, you know, has some some a few words, usually some niceties. We have some of the county executives this year. We had some of the folks running for uh, governor, um, you know, in the chamber. Um, but uh, but the governor came in, lieutenant governor, and uh, you know, um, and there's some opening day events around Annapolis. So not much gets done that very first day. But this year, you know, we we started right off the next day. Uh, taking up some some veto override issues, and um, that yeah. started on Thursday in the House, and then it followed up on Friday in the Senate with the uh, so-called um, Maryland Healthy Working Families uh, legislation, the Earned Sick Leave Bill. So it started off, uh, I would say, uh, with that, you know, some some contentious. Uh, that's a, one of the more contentious issues. Um, and you know, and I know you want to talk a little politics. So there's areas that I th- I just think there'll there'll be a, a bit of a tug of war between uh, the governor and the legislature. And then there's a lot of areas where I think there could be some 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 serious collaboration. And I'm you know I'm going to be involved with some of them. And and um, and so we can talk about that. But I think you can start uh, quickly see some of the contours of, of election year. The reason election sure. years are a little bit different than the prior three years. They you know some of the issues um you know take on a political tone not surprisingly and uh, i think this election year will be no different but um you know so uh, uh, again i think you're going to see 
the Democrats will try to nationalize a lot of the issues during the session, trying to tie the Republican governor to President Trump, who is probably not that popular in the state. Um, and, you know, there's a few wedge issues, including the one that we just talked about with the veto. Um, but I think on the flip of that, I think the governor has some real opportunities as well to collaborate with the legislature on some, some really important issues. And so you're going to see that struggle, that tug of war um, sure. play out during the session. And now, you know, and so during the session, the legislature in some ways has the upper hand because they can set a bit of the agenda. But the moment we leave, of course, you know, then we're not there and the governor has more of the bully pulpit and they may probably the political advantage may shift to the governor because um, he's, you know, the governor and the legislature's not in. And, and so, again, there's a little bit of a, a back and forth interplay um, but it's. I think the session is different than when we're out of session. When you're talking about certainly gubernatorial politics, and um, so you know, again, I think it'll be interesting politically to see that tug of war between the issues the Democrats will want to maybe force and create some distinctions between Democrats and Republicans, and I think the governor will push back and probably try to be collaborative on a lot of things, and even on the sick leave bill. You know, um, the governor um, had his own plan um, that he, he floated, and yes. although we overrode the veto, one of the things we had a debate on the floor of the Senate on Friday um, was this desire to see whether there's, there could be some changes. Even though this will now um, be the law, um, although I should make this point, and I think a lot of the folks who may be listening from Montgomery County may not know this, the debate we had about sick leave uh, and a veto override will have no impact on Montgomery County. Montgomery County passed its own uh, earned sick leave bill, uh, which yes. came into uh, became effective, I think, October the first. And last when year. we were discussing, yeah, and when we were dis- right October first of last year, and when we were debating it in legislature, la- uh, we, you know, the issue of whether we wanted to preempt Montgomery and, and or not preempt or let Montgomery let its own law be the law in Montgomery. At the end of the day, we ended up letting Montgomery's law um, stand in Montgomery. So the veto override debate uh, that we're talking about only applied to uh, all the other parts of the state, not Montgomery. So if you're an employer in Montgomery, um, everything that was happening on Thursday and Friday really has almost no impact on Montgomery County businesses. Certainly some deference there to uh, our, our local system of government in Montgomery County, which, of course, is a charter form of government with a county executive and a legislative, uh, a nine-member legislative council. But just to go back to some of the key themes that uh, the you're, we're going to take a look at in the 2018 legislative session, um, just quoting the Washington Post, they said that this session will be volatile. Um, and some of the key themes that the uh, the the, the legislature is going to focus on is, as you mentioned, the, the paid sick leave. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, Governor Hogan's bill versus what um, is going to be implemented, um, uh, the, the override. And we're also looking at some of the crime issues in Baltimore City, the changes in the tax code, metro funding, and the, the hot theme, of course, last year and moving into 2018 was the Me Too movement of um, sexual misconduct. And um, we also are, are I'm sure that you, the legislator, of course, the, the big dominant theme in the from the outset is the, the budget. And 
people who are listening should understand that Maryland, uh, the way that the Maryland Constitution has set up the office of the governor, the executive branch um, has an especially uh, important function in presenting the budget. And that's why the Maryland governorship is so powerful comparably to the rest of the governorships around in uh, uh, the 50 states. In fact, I would qualify Maryland's governorship um, and whether you agree or not, but um, I would think that it's one of the stronger governorships, um, if not one of the strongest um, in the United States, based on the power that the governor has over the budget process. What say you, uh, Senator Feldman? Well, I, I think um, on budget issues, we have a, we absolutely have a very strong governor. And um, in fact, the only thing we're actually, well, I mean, required to do down there, we don't have to do actually pass much, but we do have to pass a balanced budget uh, each and every year, uh, which we do. And we do have a AAA bond rating, one of only 11 states in the nation that can say that. Um, but that's true. Although I would, one caveat is that when you talk about policy issues, I think the legislature has the upper hand. And so, yes. you know, currently, you know, the governor uh, is dealing with a supermajority of the opposite party. So when you talk about some of these other issues, um, you know, when it, we debate policy issues, and, and a lot of the things we're going to talk about this session are not budget issues, but policy-oriented issues. Because so, I, as I said earlier, I'm in the middle of health care and we're going to have a whole bunch of stuff on health care, those are policy calls. When you talk about even the impact of the federal tax plan on Maryland, um, it's going to have budget implications for Maryland, but how we address that and solve it requires some policy calls. And so it's absolutely true that um, on its face the governor has tremendous budgetary authority relative to other governors, but um, I think, you know, you got to look at the whole mosaic when it comes to policy bills. And I serve on a policy committee, the finance committee. Um, I would say, you know, whether it's health care or taxes or environmental issues, which we're also going to have some bills this year, um, you know, I think the advantage is actually in the legislature. So um, you're absolutely correct, though, 100 percent when it comes to the budgetary authority. Let's jump right in. Let's jump right into policy, Senator Feldman, and I want to talk about a bill that is important to the District 15 delegation, and that's a bill that you are currently working on, which is the Parental Rights for Rapists. And we talk a little bit about that and what you and Kathleen Dumay are doing. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. There was that, this is one bill that actually uh, did get some coverage in the Post and the Sun, and, and in fact, Governor Hogan has expressed his strong support for this bill and will sign it immediately upon uh, getting it to his desk. So we have a really, um, when I tell people that in Maryland, if you are raped and you become pregnant as, as a result of the rape and you want to put that pa baby up for adoption, that you actually under current Maryland law may have to um, negotiate uh, you know, or get the consent of your alleged rapist, people think I'm crazy and I'm nuts. And in fact, that is the case today, that we don't have a process in Maryland whereby a woman in that situation can go um, and terminate whatever rights that alleged rapist uh, sexual assailant may uh, claim at some point. And so what this bill does, and we actually had a hearing in the Senate on Thursday, will establish a new process, a uh, civil process, uh, 
uh, not requiring a conviction, but a civil process that will allow a woman to um, uh, to do just that, um, terminate permanently terminate the rights of, of her assailant. Now, people say, well, how come that bill hasn't passed in, in prior years? Why has it taken so long? Because this bill has been around for a while. I inherited last year from Jamie Raskin in the Senate uh, mm. when he went to Congress, but Kathleen Dumay has had this bill in for many years on the House side. And, and you know, I'm a lawyer, but I will say that this bill gets over-lawyered. Um, first, the issue was, should we require a conviction, okay, a criminal conviction, uh, before you would terminate such rights? You know, do, you know, the issue of due process rights of the assailant is important. And sure. although it's, it's you know, um, but the, the problem with the conviction standard is that this is a hugely underreported crime. And only about 5% of rapes actually ever are prosecuted or result in conviction. So if you, if you insist on a conviction standard, a beyond a reasonable conviction standard, it's almost like having nothing on the books. Right. And so states have rejected that and have tried to move to a somewhat different standard, a high standard, a, a clear and convincing evidence standard. And that's what this uh, bill does. And so um, it's, you know, and, I'll, and just on that point, I mean, you know, like in the family law context, if you're um, accused of child abuse, you can lose your parental rights in family law and the family court. A court can um, take your, your rights away. If they don't, it's not uh, required. That does not require a criminal conviction of ch- child abuse. It's just under family law. Um, if it's in the best interest of the child and you've uh, proven it uh, sufficiently, you, you know, a court is absolutely entitled to terminate your rights. We're just making this standard the same as it applies normally in child custody. And, um, but it's been over-lawyered uh, to death, but I think we've worked out finally all the uh, due process issues. We have a lot of due process protections for the assailant, um, but it, is, it does say that if you can show by clearing convincing evidence um, that you were assaulted, non-consensual sex that resulted in pregnancy, and it's in the best interest of the child, that's a catch-all too, uh, then a court is going to be allowed to uh, terminate uh, um, the uh, whatever parental rights um, that per- other person may, may assert. So it's, um, I think we're going to get it done. It's Senate Bill 2 in the Senate and House Bill 1. Um, in the House, we were having early hearings, and as I say, the governor um, has uh, um, come out strongly supportive of this bill. That's good. That's a great piece of uh, bipartisan legislation, and I know often we get into the weeds of talking about what separates us between the political um, parties, but I, I have to say that this is one of those key pieces of legislation where you can point to and say this was a bipartisan effort, much like Noah's Law was. Um, which uh, and a little bit different function, but this is a an excellent piece of legislation, which I think that a majority of Marylanders support. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that you're working uh, so diligently on that with, like I said, a real champion on the Judiciary Committee in the House, um, Delegate Kathleen Dumay, um, <clears throat> who is you know, one of our own here in District 15. Um, let's go back to the sick leave override. That garnered some news over the last few days. At, I believe it was the, was it the second day of session? Um, Senator well, the Feldman, first day the House took up the veto override. I mean, the second okay. Thursday, we started on Wednesday, and then the Senate um, followed suit on, um, on on Friday with the override. So, you know, in terms of it as a technical matter, now one of the things we're debating is the effective date 
of when this will actually kick in, and um, um, and we may delay the effective date to allow some regulations to be promulgated and to you know make sure that everybody who's impacted business-wise is fully aware of you know the the um, details of this bill. So we may actually put in some legislation to delay the effective date of this now. But um, but that's what happened on Thursday and Friday. The Hogan plan said that the the reason why Governor Hogan vetoed the the bill that was originally passed was he thought that it was uh, went too far in the direction of being anti-business. Um, right. And just for clarification purposes, the governor has stated from the outset that he supported a paid sick leave bill. That is something that he fundamentally supported. It was just the difference in the details, the policy that he thought had gone too far. And I think the, the Hogan plan was, was at least 25 employees and it would be phased in over three years. And then there was a, um, uh, was a verification provision, but tell us what, what is the bill now? Tell us what, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess we you need to start that you know this is a bill that passed you know last year, and um, you know, basically in a, in a nutshell, you know, we have about five to seven hundred thousand Marylanders who have no um, sick leave um, at their employer, and so you know, I think um, I think there was a, a desire. Uh, to look out for the little guy. I mean, most of the testimony, I mean, you're talking about the impact on business, but we had testimony from folks who came to work sick. We're talking restaurants, places. You don't want people showing up to work sick. You don't want people who um, are living paycheck to paycheck, um, having no choice but to go to work because they're going to lose pay. But we have about 700,000, five to 700,000 Marylanders in that boat that this bill was designed um, to assist. Now, yeah, you know, it's a tug of war because, you know, the business community, whether it's minimum wage, and we've had those debates over here, anytime there's a debate about minimum wage, it's basically a similar debate. The same exact people who are opposed to minimum wage increases were opposed to this bill as well. Um, but, but basically for every 30 hours you work, you'll be able to accrue one hour of sick leave, um, which is, by the way, way more, and it only applies, it only applies to uh, businesses that have 15 workers or more. Unlike the local Montgomery County uh, law that I mentioned, which is extremely more liberal, pretty, yeah. pretty much applies to everybody, and um, you get more sick leave. So, you know, I would say that the eight or nine states that have passed laws like this, I'm confident, because I was in the middle of this debate, um, we have so many exceptions and carve-outs for so many, uh, you know, whether it's the home health care workers or people working on an ocean state. This is probably the most business-friendly, if you could say, you know, business-friendly of all eight or nine states that have passed it. I mean, we tried tried to take into account um, a lot of what was presented to us by the business community, and we may do more. I mean, as you say, I, w- I would just say that the governor's proposal that he rolled out now um, you know, he rolled out as a result of a task force that um, my good friend Kelly Schultz, the labor secretary, who used to I used to be on a committee with her, uh, chaired. But you know, there wasn't as much effort when we were actually having the debate last session and passed this bill. So this was, um, 
It's not late to the game, but this was a proposal that he vetted and had a task force on during the interim period that he, you know, put into play just now. Not so much um, last year when we actually, you know, were debating the bill and passed it. But I look, I this is um, not a simple issue. I mean, the governor's position of that this is not um, business friendly. I mean, I you know, we had businesses that say they'd rather they provide sick leave. They don't want to be mandated to do so. Um, we're talking five days for a whole year, um, you know, um, and we also made a point that if you're already on the front end, provide a certain number of days of leave that you're not even going to be impacted by this bill. So we, we tried to, I think, come up with something that was very sensitive to the business community, but, um, you know, the reasonable people can, can differ. And, and I, I completely understand where the governor is coming from. His, I think, applies to 25 workers or, or more. I mean, here's, I guess, the bottom line difference is this will impact five to 700,000 Marylanders um, I, my understanding is the governor's bill, and we don't. I haven't seen the governor's put in a new bill, um, and we'll have a hearing in my committee. Um, but, the, but I think the governor's bill only applies to maybe 130 or 150,000 Marylanders. So, if you're talking about the number of people impacted or would benefit from having a sick or sick leave, one is you know clearly um, is going to apply to hundreds of thousands of more Marylanders than what the governor's proposal, as I understand it, um, provides. But, I, you know, we, we, we may listen to the governor, and I think Mac Middleton during the debate said that um, he, um, you know, he's, we're willing to, to work with the governor and, and possibly even make some additional changes. But that's separate than, you know, overriding the veto and moving forward. You went straight to another over, uh, veto override in the first few days, and that was a bill that the governor vetoed last year that was essentially a, a banning of the box on Maryland public universities in which Maryland pub- – the governor believed that the bill went too far in which public universities were not allowed to uh, ask for previous criminal history. And yeah, yeah. yeah. What happened with that? With that override, well, it, and what was the reason? Yeah. Well, I think there, there's a boy. This was one with a lot of misinformation. Um, I have to say. So, you know, the idea of asking applicants to, to a public college about their criminal history, um, I think the the most people would say, sure. You know, we don't want rapists and murderers and people like that. We don't want them on the college campus. So, a college should absolutely you know, have an opportunity during the application process um, or during the admissions process to find that out and do appropriate background checks before they admit somebody. Well, this debate, though, and that is where I think things got some misinformation, all this bill in its current form, not the bill that was originally introduced last year, but the bill that actually passed, um, all it said was, that if you check up, what we were finding was that if you check a box saying you have a criminal history, then that was it, that the the, the college uh, folks would just throw it in the garbage. There would be no opportunity at that point. So all the bill says is you can't just throw that application in the garbage if all that has been done is to check the box. Right. You know, after that, um, you're absolutely entitled to find out everything you want to know about that student. But if you're, you know, trying to get a job and you have some criminal history, and we've had all this legislation about second chance and wanting to get people, yeah. you know, back into the community, 
you want to educate them. And if, if checking a box on the application results and you don't even, you know, it goes into the garbage, that's maybe not good public policy. So, you know, again, all the bill is to say is that is banned. That does not in any way mean that during the remainder of the admissions process uh, that the college cannot ask you everything that they want to ask you. And if they don't want to admit you, they don't have to admit you. But it's just that check-the-box component where that maybe should not be a disqualifier, and that is where you know what the bill, all the bill did. Again, that's not the bill that came in, but that's the bill that actually passed last year um, and and was vetoed. So you right. know, um, I mean, I get the point. We all get the point. We we a college should have that right, but that the bill is way more narrow, which is why. All the colleges originally were opposed to the original bill. No, no one was opposed to the bill as it actually sits today. No, none of the colleges are opposed to this bill anymore. So, you know, that's uh, that was not re- you know in the press, but that's you know really uh, where we st- stood with that um, when we well, took this. Up. I'm, I'm certainly a big supporter and believer fundamentally of of second chances. People make mistakes when they're kids when. But the first step to redemption, the first, on the path to redemption, is education. And um, and I think, especially in a at a public university, um, you know, you make a mistake when you're in your 20s or whatnot, and you want to go to school. You shouldn't be outright rejected if you put that on there, or at least you have an opportunity to explain the incident, or perhaps write a um, and some sort of statement that would show. Uh, what you've done with your life that uh, has had where you've 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 changed or how you have uh, learned from that mistake. I mean that's that's very basic to me. And I, I, as a big criminal justice reform advocate, um, somebody who really is passionate about this issue particularly, I think that this was the right decision, and I was um, was happy to see that uh, this this override did occur. Um, so. I would say well done on that. Um, moving into a few other issues, the, the the with the Justice Department now releasing the the new policy uh, on marijuana, the the crackdown. Um, of course, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions is very anti marijuana, and that now will would affect how states are able to. Process, it, process their licensing for uh, medicinal marijuana. Medicinal marijuana, of course, in, in the state of Maryland is legal. And, uh, you know, now that there was a deal or there was you're close to striking a deal on how to increase the number of growers' licenses um, in the way that gave minority businesses a foothold in the industry, what, as a former Justice Department lawyer and examining this 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 policy change in this in, in the in the Trump administration. How is marijuana medicinally going to be affected in the state of Maryland, Senator Feldman? Well, so I, this uh, issue comes to my health subcommittee. So uh, last year I was you know the point guy on on this issue, and and I suspect I will be again this, uh, this, you know this session. Um, so you know, for your listeners, we have had a policy in place that, yes, marijuana is illegal under federal law, but that obviously states, 
from Colorado to California to Mar- many states have had you know created medical marijuana programs. We had a rollout that was not the best; it was one of the worst in the country. In all candor, I'm happy that having passed the law in 2013, we now finally, finally, just within the last few weeks, now have a an operational. Uh, medical cannabis um, uh, program, you know, in Maryland. Um, right. So, you know, this one is um, complicated. So the Attorney General uh, reversed a policy at the Department of Justice, something uh, something called the Cole Memo, which was a memo uh, from some years ago, which basically said, look, we're we understand this is against federal law, but we're not going to devote resources. We're not going to go after states. Um, or folks in states that um, um, have enacted laws, whether it's medical or recreational. Um, and that was the policy. It was basically look the other way um, because the, you know, polling on this and, the, and the, particularly the medical marijuana uh, programs are, are popular. There's a sense that um, they do help people. And, and that's where we have been. Um, Jeff Sessions on the 4th of January reversed that and essentially through you know through the coal memo into the garbage i will say my my initial because i've been asked this a lot um my initial sense of what's happening and by the way i think president trump's been on the record during the campaign repeatedly supporting the idea of medical cannabis yeah, so said leave it it's to the a states. little uh, one of the questions i think a lot of us have is did attorney general sessions consult with president trump before he reversed the policy of the department of justice but Putting that aside, I think where we're probably going to be is that the DOJ um, has reversed the course, thrown the memo away, but that there still will be some deference given to states that have legalized, whether it's recreational or medical. And you saw that quickly. Uh, Cory Gardner, a Republican U.S. senator from Colorado, was immediately extremely critical attorney general i mean colorado is bringing in tens of millions of dollars and they're using those dollars for opioid addiction and for uh their public education and all the rest so this has major impacts in a lot of states that are funding government with um revenue from 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 cannabis so i think that um um you know i i know they did that i would be very very surprised to see the doj actually follow through and 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 assert its uh, enforcement power uh, in states like ours or any other states that have medical cannabis uh, programs and so um, but it's still tricky i will say you know we we have a medical cannabis program but for example doctors can't prescribe um, it they have can only make a recommendation because it's illegal it would be illegal under federal law to to actually prescribe medical cannabis if you carry that medical cannabis over state line then you are in violation of federal law you could be arrested so there's all kinds of um, still problems you know for these industries banking um, I moderated a panel where you know in Colorado the one of the businesses showed up uh, to pay their state taxes with two and a half million dollars in cash because they don't want to put their money in federally chartered banks because of concern about Jeff Sessions and, and 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 Department of Justice asserting some kind of money laundering charge. So, whether it's banking or insurance or anything else, um, there's a lot of complications and difficulties with running this business so long as it's in violation of federal law. But I um, I think. Um, 
And also things have changed. California, as of January 1st, is now a fully recreational uh, marijuana state with uh, an $8 billion industry. And so the more states that have programs in place, I think the more difficulty they're going to have in you know, going after businesses or, or um, you know, I, I just think it's, as a practical matter, that's going to be very, very difficult. So we're moving forward with our uh, program. We've got some legislation already in to correct some of the problems um, that emerge from our uh, cannabis program, and there were several. And we're going to actually, you know, have a debate about all that this um, this session. So you'll you'll hear about it and read about it. There was a lot of stuff I should say since I'm in the, you know, whether it's prescription drug pricing or opioid addiction, um, you know, health care premiums and, and how to respond again to what happened in the tax plan. I mean, health care is a hot topic, and I, I now have to include medical cannabis in the, into the broader general yeah. med- uh, health care discussion. And I think you're seeing that medical cannabis, uh, medicinal marijuana usage, and the the, the 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 effects in the medical community—it's really taken a dramatic shift, and and people are overwhelmingly favoring it now. I'm not saying that. I mean, you have some of your colleagues who are adamantly opposed to it uh, that will swear <laughs> that the there is absolutely no medicinal benefit whatsoever. Um, I've done my own research and have been a passionate advocate for uh, medicinal marijuana, but I, I can tell you that this is something that uh, there's it, it, the federal government, of course, throwing a wrench into the fire um, when President Trump himself said during the campaign that we should um, definitely leave it to the states. And of course, the attorney general, I, I just I mean, it would really take a um, a federal district attorney to um would to to really prosecute this, and I just don't see that happening in this yeah, region. Yeah, I really would be, I, I don't either. I, I, one little interesting, you know, one of the big issues of our for our state, maybe crisis in our state and around the nation, is opioid addiction. And sure. one of the interesting little anecdotal thing, uh, facts or reports coming out of Colorado right now is, you know, opioid addiction numbers are down. Um, people are actually turning to medical cannabis instead of opioids. And so, we, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. But opioid addiction in our state, we had about a 65% increase in opioid-related uh, deaths from 2015 to 16. In fact, Governor Hogan declared a state of emergency in our state and has thrown some dollars uh, behind it. But um, just, you know, it's anecdotal at this point. But, um, um, you know, uh, interesting uh, report I saw out of Colorado on that on that front so um just moving on um <laughs> earlier I I would be remiss and I'm going to take a a a, pro, a point of personal privilege as they would say um on the Senate floor uh to to speak about something that's very important to me and um I I had approached uh, delegate Miller uh, Aruna Miller that is in of district 15 um shortly after I read an AP article um, in which state governments or local municipal governments were suing people who uh, filed public information requests and that where the state government or the local government simply just didn't wish to turn it over, and then they were monetarily filing civil suit against these record requesters. And so I, I brought this to the attention of Delegate Miller, and I said, there's there's a bill that was um, that was put forth in the Michigan 
um, lower house and their house of delegates, and it passed unanimously 108 to zero. Then I, <coughs> excuse me, I then asked you about cross-filing in the Senate, and it's the, the legislation um, is is called the Public Information Act, and um, so I want to say sincerely thank you for 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 putting this forward and to dropping the bill. Um, I, I talked to your um, your chief of staff on Thursday, and she uh, had informed me that, uh, of course, the bill was dropped on Friday, which is very exciting. So I'm hoping that this garners bipartisan support, and I've been talking to um, several legislators, and I'm having conversations and doing, if you will, my own <laughs> lobbying efforts. So um, I, as, a, as, as a journalist, as uh, somebody who has uh, – uh, filed several uh, public information requests, uh, not only in local government, but in state government, just for basic information. Uh, I could never for, foreseeably uh, understand why any record requester would be then in turn sued by said state government. So I'm hoping that this garners um, the, the support that it needs, and I hope we get it passed. So yeah, I don't well, know if, if you you're lobbying, let's, uh, let's try to, you know, uh, work to get as many co-sponsors on the bill as possible, um, sure. you know, at some point. But I, I, um, I look, I, I want to thank you for bringing that to my attention. It wasn't oh, on my radar screen, but, uh, you know, this is a good example of just getting good ideas from folks in the community. And, you know, this seems like a perfectly reasonable, appropriate uh, piece of legislation. So um, I'm optimistic we can get it done. Good. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, um, w- of course, when it's time to to testify, um, I I think that uh, we'll we'll get this uh, underway, and so I, I plan to testify. And um, be interesting to see if the the ACLU of Maryland would be willing to touch this, and um, that that's something I'm I'm looking into and, and following up on. But there's I know that my understanding is Common Cause uh, might be interested in taking up this as well. Um, and well, if you look at good governance, the issue of transparency oh, yeah. is an important one. And, and uh, you know, look, I think this is um, it's good policy. So, uh, again, I, I'd be really surprised if we, we don't I, – I, I really am trying to think of who really would be all that opposed. I'm, I'm sure you know, but I, I, I can't <laughs> up, off the top of my head think of um, – you know, it seems like a, a, the kind of bill that should should go through. But sure. you know, as I said, it's um, I shouldn't I should qualify that it's not that easy to pass bills. I mean, it's easier to kill bills than to pass bills, and bills that seem like no brainers. I mean, I was talking to you earlier about the parental rights of rapist bill. I mean, if you know, I, in my wildest dreams, like you wouldn't imagine that that would be a difficult bill to pass. There are issues that aren't even um, so obvious until you have a hearing and then people come in and they raise you know, questions. So uh, let's not get too cocky here, Ryan, but it seems at oh, first no. blush, uh, this seems like a solid bill. And so, Well, we'll see when it, when it hits committee and when, when questions are, are, are asked and at the time of testimony, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, as the president says, we'll see what happens. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm confident and <clears throat> I'm also, um, like I said, I'm going to be working hard to, to get out the message and to bring it to the attention of your colleagues in the Senate and the house. And, um, I'm, I'm arranging phone conversations and in-person meetings and coming to Annapolis and, um, hanging out and, and seeing what we can do. So this is, this is very important to me. And as a, as a transparency advocate, um, I am, I'm hoping that the, the governor would also sign it. And I, I'm pretty sure that um, I haven't talked to anybody on his staff, but um, that's 
that's going to be in the works. So um, we'll see. Uh, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little politics um, about what's happening um, as far as the governor's race. I, I anticipate that this will be uh, not not necessarily a contentious session, but politics will be on the front uh uh, of everybody's mind in that there's a, a major gubernatorial election. And for for what it's worth, uh, we should talk about the governor's election. The the governor, by all indications, is, is riding high in the polls. That's not necessarily to say that that could not change. And given that he is a Republican governor in a, in a deeply Democratic state uh, with a Democratic supermajority, um, he's nonetheless persisted and has proven himself to be um, very likable and, and adept at politics. And he's, um, he seems to be highly regarded uh, both among majority of Republicans and, and some, of the, some of the Democrats in Maryland. And looking at the, the, the county by county map, I, I sort of see it going the same way as it did in, in 20. Uh, 2014, where he he takes a lot of the surrounding counties, and uh, you know, of course, he would have to win in Howard County and Baltimore County, but um, it's it's likely that he'll he'll not be able to pick up Montgomery or PG County or Baltimore City, and maybe his numbers will simply be similar to what they were in 2014, or it could be the opposite where. The, the national sentiment, the fervor that the, the president um, is arguably deeply unpopular in our state. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen a poll what his approval rating is. Maybe maybe, you know, but um, I, I don't see uh, I, I don't see that that Trump will grow any more popular. And over the next uh, 10, 10, 11 months for the November election. Um, and there's some quality candidates running Senator Feldman on the Democratic side. And just to name a few, there's uh, Prince George's County Executive Rusharon Baker, who's been in elected office for quite some time. There's Baltimore County Executive Kevin Kamenetz. And there is Ben Jealous, former NAACP chief, um, who is running to the left of everyone else. Then, of course, there's State Senator Rich Manolino that you serve with in the Senate. And uh, his colleagues have uh, heaped high praise on Senator Madalino for his expertise in budgetary issues. And then there is tech entrepreneur Alec Ross. There's former Michelle Obama policy director Krishanti uh, Vignaraja. Um, and then there is Baltimore super attorney um, and either the former president or continue or still the president of Venerable Law Firm. Uh, Jim Shea, and I don't know. Am I missing anybody? Did I name everybody? I think I did. There was. I think, I think you. Um, I think. I think you. I think you got the um, at least most of them. <laughs> and, and of course, Dr. Maya Rockamore Cummings uh, recently suspended her bid for governor due to personal reasons, and it was reported that her husband Elijah Cummings, who was a congressman in Maryland's seventh congressional district, that he was recently hospitalized. So we're. we're giving our best wishes to um, Elijah Cummings and his wife, um, Dr. Cummings. So um, that would have been an interesting race. But I think at one time there was, there were eight gubernatorial candidates and it, 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 and it feels like the race is breaking up in a couple of different ways. 
excuse me. Um, and it looks like that, if you will, the establishment of of of, of Maryland is drifting toward uh, Rashern Baker, and then Ben Jealous is also getting a lot of the left wing progressive support, the the Bernie Sanders support. Of course, he traveled alongside Senator Sanders on the campaign trail in 2016. Um, I don't know if he was his right-hand man, but he was certainly instrumental in the Sanders campaign and the, the Our Revolution movement. So, um, And then Senator Maddalino will – I think it's going to be a very regional um, type of race where candidates could take Harford County, Cecil, Baltimore, and um, then there's going to be a fight over Howard County. Western Maryland, it looks like, could be up for grabs. And then Montgomery County would largely be based on um, who does well uh, on the lower portion of the county. So I look for Senator Madalino to do pretty well um, in his district and, 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 and in and around Silver Spring, Bethesda area. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking that it's it, – and then, of course, we learned that Alec Ross, he raised a million dollars. That's significant. We have to point that out. Um, and then – there's well, only let me, one let me just on the on the camp, you know, on the money issue. Just so so everybody knows, this week actually this Wednesday is the filing deadline for everybody's campaign reports, and so yeah. we'll know this week how much money everybody has, not not <laughs> just Mr. Ross, but all the folks you um, mentioned, and, and the governor. So um, you know, this week is kind of important uh, in terms yeah. of laying um, some foundation in terms of where what kind of resources people are reporting. So, um, and when do we find that number? Those numbers out. So the deadline is Wednesday, this Wednesday. But uh, people are doing their reports already, and so if you go on the Maryland State Board of Elections um, and campaign finance, you can actually pull up anybody's report. But again, um, the deadline's Wednesday. But but there, you know, over the next few days. Those reports from every candidate running for state legislature to governor, those reports will trickle on in, and you can you can take a look and see how everybody stacks up in every legislative yeah. district, and and so it's a, for a political junkie, uh, people love that stuff. So you know, going through everybody's yeah. report, who gave money to who, and how much they've got cash on hand, and all that, you know. So, um, but um, I don't know if you wanted me to comment on any of the things you said about the, sure, about I, the governor's race, but. I don't you know, want to put you in a. No, that's fine. I mean, I'll, spot, you know, I'll make a few few comments. I mean, you know, I think the governor is in a strong position. Um, he is. Um, he's got some high approval numbers. I would say that 2014 was a, a historically low turnout for Democrats, and so 2018 may not be that. Um, if you were to look to what happened in Virginia, um, as an example. Uh, because, you know, the, although his approval numbers are around 70, at least through the poll that came out, his actual, when he's matched up against each of these various folks, he's still up double digits, so he's in a strong position, um, but his number's under 50. And as I understand, I'm not an official pollster, but if your number's under 50, it's, you know, that you, you have some vulnerability. And the issue of turnout, I think, is probably the, the biggest um Concern, Democratic turnout, it may be you know something that the governor's looking at. But in terms of money, I think he'll have a big financial advantage, and all the Democratic candidates are going to have to blow through all their money uh, to get out of the primary. And so when you get out, you know, when we have the matchup uh, at the end of June, um, the governor will be in a strong uh, advantage financially. But again, as you point out, um, 
you know, the state, um, if you have a, a big Democratic turnout like that in Virginia, um, you know, it, it, it could be a challenge. Um, and so we'll have to see how that shakes out. You know, as far as the Democratic side, um, I think you touched on it. I think, and I'm a, I, I think there's some, it's a little early to say, we'll see how the funding, but there are some, you know, some polls that suggest that um, certain folks are in a better position than others. I mean, one observation I would say that last year uh, in the presidential campaign in November of 16, you know, Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders by 25 or 30 points. And so when you um, try to gauge um, the Maryland Democrats, um, you know, the folks that are maybe slightly more moderate might have an advantage. On the other hand, some people think the energy in the Democratic Party is out of the more progressive Sanders wing. But the polling of having maybe Rashern Baker and Kevin Kamenetz and and Jealous, um, at, you know, and where they are, um, maybe suggests that some of the more well-known names, um, you know, have, have an advantage. So it, it's it's going to be very interesting. I think it's still um, pretty wide open. Um, I think Baker is probably best positioned right now, at least according to the polling. Uh, but, um, you know, we shall see. I think it's going to be a very interesting race. As I said earlier, you're going to have the session's going to play a role, though. You know, um, the governor's going to have to figure out a way to distance himself in some ways from the federal tax plan, which impacted Maryland, uh, you know, maybe more than any state in the country um, in a lot of ways. So he's going to have a tax plan of his own. The Democrats in the legislature may have a different plan. That's high stakes. That's going to impact every person in the state of Maryland you know, what we do to address that. Uh, Metro funding you mentioned that I'm working on for the D.C. metro area, that's important. I mean, these are health care, as I talked about earlier. These are going to be debated uh, during the session, and the governor uh, will have to see where the governor is and, you know, is he going to take a more collaborative uh, perspective on these things or is it going to be, you know, an us-against-them kind of uh, take. I mean, I think that will shape and frame the, the whole governor's race uh, in a big way. And then, the, you know, the Democratic primary as well, um, you know, that's in June. I mean, we're already in, in January. It's not that far from now with early voting. People are going to be voting in early June. We're already middle of January. So that, that race is, I think, if you're polling at one or two percent now, it's going to be hard in that relatively short time, unless you have a huge amount of money to make up that gap. So I think you can start to predict, you know, the likely scenarios. And then people are going to pick running mates, too, you know, and that may have some impact as well. Again, that has to be done by the 27th of February. So just for your viewers, everybody who's running for office, whether it's the House of Delegates, the State Senate, Governor, all have to file their paperwork by the 27th of February. And also, by that time, each of these people running for governor will have to file uh, the paperwork for who they're running with, who their lieutenant governor is. So, you know, that is only a little over a month away. And that, you know, that's an important decision for all these Democratic uh, nominees. That may, uh, some of the people you're talking about running may find themselves on somebody else's ticket. That's right. This field will probably not be as large as it is now when we get to eventually to uh, to June. And that, I think that's I, also important to note. So. I, I think so. And I think that you'll see it dwindle uh, to maybe three or four. And uh, I think some of these candidates have real staying power. And um, I, I just think that there's one strategy that I wanted to question that uh, it, it's popular in the state of Maryland to want to compare 
Governor Larry Hogan to Donald Trump. And I often think that it's a bit of an unfair and and really a um, uh, it's it's a bit of a misnomer, if, if in my personal opinion. And and I, I look at how vastly different they are, and I I see that the governor had come out and said, "Well, I voted for my dad," and um, and you could, you know, if you pulled Larry aside and said, "Hey, you know." off the record or just one-on-one between us. If you sat down with him over a beer at a, you know, at the, at the West and I, I guarantee you, he would probably feel like many of us do in his reaction to the president. And, you know, where it's, we're, we're often shocked or appalled, or there is, we're just embarrassed by the things he says or um, his actions. And it's just that he has a very interesting delegate, uh, you know, a, a balancing act because He's got to get the Republicans in the state of Maryland to come out and vote for him, and he can't upset them. And sometimes he has. And you know, the, the, the right wing of the party, which is dominated by the pro-Trump voters, um, balance that with some of the more moderate voters. And someone, of course, I'm a registered independent, so I can't vote for anybody in, in the primary. Um, um, but, you know, in, in the general um, it's it's going to be interesting, but the Democrats have tried to largely throw out that 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 Larry Hogan is so similar to uh, Donald yeah, Trump. I don't, but I you know, that, I, I mean, I'm in, I'm I'm in agreement with you. I don't think that line of attack. Um, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't think people perceive Larry Hogan <laughs> as Trump-like, and I think no. um, I think the governor, I think, is. Uh, you know, for the most part, um, made it clear. I don't think he's the biggest fan of of, of, of this this president. Um, sure. But you know that said, it's still you know for the governor to get elected, he needs to get a lot of Democrats in Montgomery County and elsewhere to walk into the ballot box and say, okay, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I'm going to go vote Republican. And you know that um, is why I come back to issues of turnout and who's mobilized and energized, and that'll have a lot to say about how this election unfolds in the I fall. Agree. Um, and you know, will have nothing to do with you know whether the Democrats are successful about tying Larry Hogan to, to Donald Trump. It'll be about who's energized to turn out and vote. And as I said in 2014. Um, the Democratic side did not vote, and that obviously um, helped Larry Hogan get elected. Um, in Virginia, you saw what happened with Gillespie, you know, in, in, in that race. Um, yeah. And, you know, Gillespie was a pretty moderate guy, um, but the Democrats turned out in Northern Virginia. And um, so oh, I yeah. don't know how – November's a long way away, too. You know, um, as and I, I think you said, well, things – Donald Trump may not be any different popular-wise between now and November, but, you know, um, things can change. The economy's still pretty solid. Um, you know, the stock market's at all-time highs, and um, it's still a long, long way between now and November. But I, I do want to emphasize, I do think that we have some issues on the table this session that will be interesting to see how the governor um, positions himself, uh, whether it's the federal tax plan or health care or, or, or other Education issues. Funding. These are, yeah, I mean, these are, these, are, these are tough issues, and it is a bit of a, uh, a tightrope, uh, you know, and it's, 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 you know, I think he's in a, a tough spot, but, you know, he, so far he's been skilled politically. But, again, I think this is going to present 
uh, potentially some challenges. Environment, you know, we'll have some again environmental uh, bills in. And uh, but I, I want to say one broader issue that I think is so important for our region. You know, I serve on the board of directors of the Metro Washington Council of Governments. So this is a regional issue. Is when you see what's happening on Capitol Hill right now about their discussion of downsizing the federal government, federal workforce, are they going to shut down the government? That impacts our state more than any state, or this region, I should say, more than any region in the nation. And we can't depend on, uh, on um, you know, f- federal largesse anymore. We're going to have to diversify our private sector uh, economic portfolio. And so, um, you know, we have Discovery was, you know, left this week. We've got to be smart about policies that really um, – do all that. So we have a lot of big, big issues for our region. Again, whether it's tax, responding to the tax plan, or um, some environmental issues impacting Chesapeake Bay. But these are thorny political issues, and they're all going to be in play this session. And how the governor manages it, I think, will be you know important and interesting for your viewers to, to you know to watch. But uh, but I would say that in the on the front end, he's. He's, you know, he's he's in a strong position. It's going to take a um, a pretty strong candidate with a lot of resources and a good message to um, to defeat him in the fall. But I, he's probably the favorite, as I would say right now. You know, and he'll have a lot of resources. So. Yeah, I think that sounds analysis. And I, I wanted to to ask you, um, I there was a little hubbub or hallabaloo on the the Senate floor. Um, the I, I don't know if it, I think it may have been. Friday, um, but your your colleague in an adjacent district, State Senator Cheryl Kagan, uh, she had um, had risen to speak on a point of personal privilege uh, regarding the president's recent remarks about immigration, where he referred to <laughs> as and I'm not laughing. It's just it was amusing. Yeah. And, and we, I think and we all know what you want to say. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the s hole. Um, comment. Um, but uh, I saw that Senator Kagan had stood up and was actually um, interrupted by, was it Senator Bob? Um, yeah, Senator I, Bob Castley from Hartford thought um, yeah. he stepped in and thought it was um, an inappropriate use of a uh, point of personal privilege for for Senator Kagan to, um, you know, to, to I would say call out the president, President Trump, on those remarks, and so there was a back and forth on that. I would say that um, what happened after was actually more interesting. Was they had their back and forth, and Senate President Miller let her proceed. But we have several senators who either were born. Uh, we have Victor Ramirez then got up, who um, is El Salvadorian. We have uh, Shirley Nathan Pulliam, born in Jamaica. But we had most probably uh, memorable was Senator Dolores Kelly got up. And her son is married to a woman from Haiti, and her children, her grandchildren, are you know, um, you know, their mother is uh, Haitian, and she talked about how that night um, she sat down with her three grandchildren, whose mother is Haitian, Haitian, to talk about the president's comments, and so this all kind of spilled over into the Senate floor after Senator Kagan um, made her remarks, and so I, I you know, I. Um, you know, people had some mixed feelings. I think at the front end about whether it was an appro- it was appropriate. But then when you heard these um, other senators get up with their own personal life histories and how 
they felt at their core impacted by what the what the president had said it it kind of gave you i think a little bit of a different take on things um you know, where I think Senator Cassidy's point was a pretty narrow one, that it's an inappropriate um, use of the Senate floor time to attack the president. But I think when, you know, when these other folks came in, you looked at it, I think, a little bit broader about – and he and the Senate President Miller, you know, gives us great flexibility if we – something's in the press about, and, and, you know, somebody wants to get up and talk about it, um, particularly early in session when we, you know, we're not as busy – he gives us a lot of latitude to just get up and talk about what's on our mind, and he did yeah. that here, and and it spurred this whole again, a bunch of other folks coming up. But it's um, you know, but it was uh, that's 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 what happened. So, um, but but Senator Cassidy was troubled that you know we were attacking, or Senator Kagan was was um, uh, you know bringing that to the Senate floor, those particular remarks. So you know, yeah. Always interesting. So just to, to, to spend the last few moments, um, I want to bring it back down to the local level. And to, to here in District 15, and as I mentioned uh, earlier in the show at the beginning, that um, Delegate Miller is um, opting not to run for re-election in the House of Delegates. And there are several candidates that um, have, have now signed up to, to run for state delegate. And just to, to name a few, there's Lily Chi, who works for the county executive here in Montgomery County. There's Kevin Mack, uh, who works for the district director uh, in Montgomery and Frederick Counties for Congressman Delaney. Um, there's a new candidate who I saw um, just uh, just registered. Um, is it SB? J- um, there's um, JSB, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. JF. And there's and there's about there's about yeah, you I'll let you go through the list. I want you know. Um yeah, and there's there's Jay Espy, there's uh, Andy Van Way, who is a former um Capitol Hill reporter for um for one of the uh the news outlets there. And let's see. Am I miss there's um it looks like a guy a, a democratic activist Hamza Khan is is going to jump in on the 21st and then um uh, Anis uh, uh, Ahmed, I, I I might be mispronouncing, and, and I do apologize if I am, but um, I think that's that's so far um, the list. But that it's it, it seems like there's quite a bunch there, and yeah. uh, I I don't know I don't I I think it would be unfair to predict if there's anybody who has an upper hand, but um, I I see that this could be a a spirited race, and it's it's one to to certainly to watch. And, uh, that's, that's, you know, as a district 15 representative, I'm going to be a constituent. I'm going to be following this very closely as I'm sure you will, but I want well, to point I think out. It reflects, that, yeah. I think it reflects, you know, people are interested. I mean, when they talk about energy and democratic great. side, I mean, people are interested in, in, you know, uh, I, look, I ran, I think I said at the very beginning, I ran when there was an open seat, Mark Shriver, these seats don't open up that often. And here, you know, there's an open seat and I think people um, people want to make a difference in their community and their state. And so um, now I'm, you know, right now myself um, and Kathleen Dumay and David Fraser-Dolgo, the three of us are, are basically going to run as a team and let democracy yes. work its way uh, for that open seat. So I don't want to weigh in, you know, on behalf of anybody in particular. Um, but we have a lot, there's a lot of good people there. We have a, a history of having a strong delegation in District 15 and, and I uh, have no doubt that whoever emerges will be uh, um, will be able to get along with great, and 
you know, I'm, I'm excited myself just to, to see how that plays out. And um, But there's some good cool. people in that field, very, very good people, strong people. Right. And and just to highlight that the, the your your slate your team um, is not going to endorse any candidate over the other. Um, and I mean that's not our primary plan. Now obviously if if you know I mean things um, I mean I, you never say never in politics right, right? so I don't want to <laughs> say that that would could never happen but I think our our current sense is that rather than um, Self-selecting some somebody. I mean, I think let let the people of District 15 make that call is yeah. kind of. I think we're where we are right now, and so. Well, I think that's a a, a good uh, strategy move. But Senator Feldman, um, you are an, an excellent guest. I I sincerely appreciate all of your time, and I think that this Annapolis session, this 90 days, will be very interesting to watch. And I will certainly come down and visit and to. To hang out a bit. And I look forward um, to your testimony. We're going to get that bill passed. Yes. So beyond uh, just yes. come down to watch, you're going to come down and testify next to me I will. on that, that bill we talked about, right? So well, I, um, bring your I, a, I, I, my only thing is you bring your A game. you got to bring your A I game will. that day. <laughs> I will certainly have a prepared remarks, and uh, it, it means a lot to me that uh, for your, your advocacy. So with that, I, I want to say thank you so much for, uh, for joining us tonight on the premiere show of 2018. And um, all the best to you and this session. I know you're going to be working hard and on behalf, not only of district 15 constituents, but on behalf of all Marylanders. So delegate or uh, rather uh, Senator, thank you so much for, for spending your Sunday evening with us and uh, we'll catch up here soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ryan. That's great. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Okay. That was Senator Brian Feldman of district 15. And with that, uh, we'll go ahead and end the show. We'll see you next week. Um, on my show next week, I'm going to be interviewing Montgomery County council at large candidate Ashwani Jane. So definitely an interview you not going to want to miss. So have a great week, everyone.